Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober, covering lifestyles in the world of real food. My guest today is Alex Lewin, author of the book Real Food Fermentation, which released a revised and expanded version at the beginning of this year. Alex, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Aaron. I'm excited to be here. It's great to have you on. Fermentation is a big part of this program, I think, along with agriculture and specifically livestock. When it comes to food and a lot of the plant-based foods, fermented is how we like it. Yeah, I was thinking most things are better fermented than not, although you reach a point where it becomes exotic to have something that's not fermented, and so that can be nice, too. It can. So tell the listeners a little bit about how you got interested in fermentation and decided to write a book about it. It pulled together a, a bunch of things from different parts of my life. If we can go back to when I was a teenager. Yes, let's go back I, there. <laughs> okay. I was frustrated with the world around me. I saw politicians. They were lying. They were doing awful things. I felt powerless about the whole thing. And I felt like, doesn't anyone see what's happening? And I felt like there was this big thing that I didn't feel like had any access to do anything that would fix the world. Right. And so there is that thread. There is another thread where as I got older and my father got older, he had chronic heart disease and later diabetes. And I saw the doctors trying to help him and failing to and giving him margarine and telling him not to eat fat and all this, which were sort of contradictory. But so I looked around for books that could explain. I tried to understand it. I was a math major. I studied physics. These sciences, math and physics, there are usually clear answers to questions that you have, or at least it's easy to follow the discussion and to understand where we are in our understanding of something. And that is not true. As we know, in nutrition science, there are 10 people have 20 different opinions about what kind of fat you should eat or whether it's better to eat plant-based or animal products. So I started reading books and they all had different ideas about what we should be eating and how we should be living. And I did eventually find some books that started to make sense. But we can come back to that. What I figured out was that little teenage radical Alex could change the world by empowering people to take charge of their own food and health reality. That was the access point that I finally found that allowed me to feel like I was doing something worthwhile. And I didn't put all those pieces together until well afterwards. What got me into fermenting was I found a book in a bookstore just randomly called The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. And I bought it purely for the title because it's a riff on an early 70s funk song called The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And I thought this was the funniest title and coolest title I'd ever seen. So I read it and it is a book about radical food politics, which I had really not thought about at all. I read this book, blew my mind. I said, who is this Sandor Katz guy who's written this book? What else has he written? And so I, what else has he written? He's written a book called Wild Fermentation. So I read that and then my mind was blown again. And that was what made me aware of fermentation. And the foreword to that book is written by Sally Fallon. And I was like, oh, who's this Sally Fallon person? She wrote this beautiful introductory material for this book. And so what has she written? And she's written a book called Nourishing Traditions. So I read that and my mind was blown again because I think the first 70 pages of that book is a better exposition of nutrition science than pretty much anything else I read before or since, really. So that got me onto the track I'm on with fermented foods and empowering people to take charge of their own food and health reality. Yes, all great books, and I know that those books are all required reading of some of the holistic nutrition programs, such as the Nutritional Therapy Association, and that's a lot, too, of what I've learned in terms of real food and what I talk about on this podcast. What led to you writing Real Food Fermentation? And just recently, as I explained in the intro, you came up with the expansion of it that was released earlier this year. 
what made you decide to revise the book? Well, the first edition came out in 2012, and the new edition came out 10 years later in 2022. Fermentation hasn't really changed in 10 years. It's been around for thousands of years or more. People fermenting things has been thousands. What had changed was I had figured out, first of all, some of my techniques I'd refined. My goal in writing the book in the first place was to make fermentation as accessible as possible to as many people as possible, to make it as easy as possible for people to do it in their home kitchens with as little extra expensive, weird equipment as possible. Like anything you can do with just a knife and a jar, that's sort of my jam. So the second edition, part of what I wanted to do was just simplify, clarify, just make sure that every recipe in there was as clear and simple and set up for success as possible. So there was some amount of just refining things. The other things, I added a new preface for the new edition and I was writing it during the pandemic. And this brought some things into focus for me, a couple of things. One of them is we in the U.S., we live in a rich country with supermarkets and electricity in our houses. And we don't really think about infrastructure collapse that much until it happens, until suddenly we go to the supermarket and where we expect the Cheerios to be, there are no Cheerios or the toilet paper or the eggs or the milk. For the rest of the world, a lot of the rest of the world, this is sort of regular occurrence. And so I like to use the zombie apocalypse as a metaphor because I think it is a metaphor. The zombie apocalypse is the thing that we can't conceive, the thing that is beyond imagining actually coming to be and happening. There are no zombies, just like... Sure, I can go to this store and buy a cabbage. Why wouldn't I be able to do that? It's beyond our imagination that we wouldn't be able to go to the supermarket and buy food. So infrastructure collapse is the zombie apocalypse. Zombie apocalypse is more colorful, right? But that happens around the world. It's happening in Ukraine. It's happened in Iraq. It's happened in Puerto Rico. It's happened in New Orleans. It's happened in Syria. It happens. There are places where you can't buy things and you don't have electricity. And so then what do we do? We as a species developed without supermarkets and without electricity, certainly. So we can do it. Does it make sense for us to be ready to do it? I mean, what does the future hold for humans? Probably more, at least interruption of infrastructure stuff. So I talked about this a little bit more in the preface to the new edition. I also wanted to add a couple of things that seemed like relevant ferments for the COVID era, I guess. Everyone was going crazy about sourdough, right? Mm -hmm. And for a while, it was impossible to buy yeast at the store. I'm like, oh, well, you don't really need yeast. People were making bread before there were little shiny foil packets of yeast. And so I added some material about sourdough and how you can keep a sourdough starter. And I have my own sort of take on why one might keep a sourdough starter. I've kept sourdough starters for long periods of time, and I don't make that much bread, but there are lots of other things you can do with sourdough starters. So that's my angle on that. And sourdough starters, I talk about the relationship between bread and beer also, which is an interesting take, I think. There are two ends of a spectrum of fermented wheat or grain stuff. The other ferment I wanted to add to the new book is a Japanese soybean bacterial ferment called natto. And when Americans were buying toilet paper, pulling all the toilet paper off the shelf in Japan, everyone was buying natto. And the shelves were bare of natto because everyone was buying natto. Why were they doing that? Well, natto is a traditional food in Japan. And it's one of these traditional foods that maybe some of the older generations will eat because they know that it's healthy. So when the pandemic happened, we noticed that all the natto is gone from the shelves and the mainstream press were quick to write articles about, oh, well, you know, natto, they say it's good for you, but is it really going to help with COVID? No, of course not, right? Nobody has proven that that eating natto helps with COVID. And so then at some point, somebody did a test and extracted one of the enzymes that's in natto and put it in a test tube with some COVID virus. And what do you know? The enzyme in the natto killed the COVID virus. Wow. And the article still said, well, of course, this doesn't mean that eating natto will help you with COVID. And I'm like, well, yeah, no, it doesn't necessarily mean it, but it sure doesn't mean it won't. And it's 
certainly isn't going to hurt to eat some natto, right? There's no other food that we know of that will kill COVID in the test tube. So <laughs> it's just interesting to me the the perpetual willingness of a lot of press to say, well, we haven't proven that X, Y, Z, so don't count on it. Like we haven't proven that kombucha helps with your digestion. So don't bother having kombucha to help your digestion. Well, maybe we haven't proven it the way we've proven that the earth is approximately a sphere. But I do know a lot of people who have been helped by drinking kombucha. So I figured it would make sense to put natto in the book. And I think I decided that even before this study came out. But those are the two big ones that I've added to the book. I also reorganized some of the chapters in a way that would make a little more sense. So that's what's new in the book. I believe that for people who haven't done a lot of fermenting, my book is a great intro book. I have lots of full-color photos step-by-step directions with a photo for each step in a lot of cases. And I just try to keep it as absolutely simple as possible. For people who have a lot of experience fermenting, the techniques in my book, they may or may not learn a lot from them. I like to think that the stuff in between and before and after the recipes could still be interesting. That's the part that by the time I wrote the book, the recipes are just like, oh yeah, this is how I make it. I didn't have to think deeply and I didn't have to create a whole lot in order to just get the recipes out of my head onto paper. But for the stuff that isn't the recipes, I think it's the part that allowed me to add my special sauce a little bit more. So I think a lot of the value add in the book is the stuff that isn't the recipes. Yes, I think that's a great explanation of what made you decide to revise the book. And I like how you bring up about the sections in the book that are the non-recipes. And that's really a big portion of your book is actually explanation and really great job of it, of talking about why fermenting and the history of it. And compared to like other ways of preserving foods, why fermenting is a great method, way more than just a cookbook per se. Yeah, there are books out there that are just fermentation cookbooks. There are also fermentation books out there that have more information about, oh, you can use these spices or you can serve it this way. There are a hundred different sets of spices and vegetables and things that you can add to your sauerkraut. And I only choose a few examples to go into in my book. So, you know, yes, you can make your ginger turmeric aniseed sauerkraut or your juniper berry clove sauerkraut. And I don't have full page recipe for each of those because I think my idea is to start people on their fermentation journey or to support them on their fermentation journey to give them enough context so that they can improvise and they feel like they understand what's going on well enough that they are comfortable living in fermentation land rather than having to um, be told, oh, now you can use these herbs and spices. Yes. You talked about how during the pandemic, a lot of people were making sourdough. And I think most people know about that. It almost became a joke that we hear everywhere. Do you think the pandemic got people to learn about fermentation altogether and learn about making other things such as maybe, say, sauerkraut? I think it did. I mean, I think it got people in the kitchen because in a lot of cases, people certainly weren't going out to eat in restaurants outside the house. And there's only so much takeout that you can stand or that you can afford, maybe. People were cooking more. And I think part of that was people spending more time in the kitchen and just paying more attention to food. And I think the pandemic is terrible. A lot of people have died. It's tragic. And it has also taught us some things. And one of them is that you need to take care of your own food. And so insofar as that is one of the lessons of the pandemic, I think there is some kind of silver lining there. And I do think people were fermenting more just beyond sourdough. People were making more beer and... Oh, yes, home brewers. <laughs> yeah. And we forget that there are a lot of things that are fermented. It's not just fermented vegetables. Alcohol is a huge one for people who can... You also mentioned earlier about how sourdough starter can be used for other things than just bread, which I think is an important part to bring up for any people who have those sourdough starters that they never used during the pandemic. What are some things that they could use with this starter that's just sitting around in their fridge? If you don't bake bread every day and you have sourdough starter, first of all, for me, managing a sourdough starter is a whole lot easier if I keep it out of the fridge. Like if I keep it bubbly and active, then I know where it's at. I have a feel for where it's at in its trajectory from being fed to if you let it go for too long, it gets 
weird and funky. If you put it in the fridge, it sort of goes to sleep, and then you have to feed it, wait for it to wake up. And I think it's a little less easy to understand its rhythm that way. So I like to keep the sourdough starter out on the counter, which means I have to feed it every day, which means I have what they call sourdough discard every day because every time you feed it, it doubles in size approximately, and you don't want it to take over your home. So for me, every day I had some sourdough starter I had to do something with, and I'm sure not going to make bread every day. So my favorite is sourdough porridge. That's very easy. You add some sourdough starter to some water and cook it and stir and then you eat it. There you can make sourdough pancakes, you can make sourdough crackers. All of these are easier and use a lot less energy, both your own energy and your oven's energy, than making bread. And they are really things that you aren't going to be able to buy. You're not going to be able to go to most restaurants and have sourdough porridge with your brunch, but is delicious and is more nutritious than an unfermented wheat porridge. And for all the reasons that fermented things are often easier to digest and have more nutrients and what nutrients they have are more bioavailable, sourdough porridge is by far the best porridge type thing you can have. So my sourdough rhythm was to feed it every day and to do something with the extra. And maybe I would save up a few days worth and then make crackers. But I think it's important to get to know sourdough also. And then maybe you can put it in the fridge and understand its rhythms. But if you're just keeping it in the fridge and taking it out every week to feed it, to keep it alive, the other thing is you don't really gain anything from that. You can start your own sourdough in the space of a few days if you decide you need it. And so like keeping it around just to feed it and never using it, you may as well just start over when you need it. And I wonder, you know, people say, oh, well, I have this sourdough starter that traces its lineage back to this bakery in Paris from 200 years ago. But you're in San Francisco, say, and you've been tending this sourdough starter there for a year. And I suspect that most of the strains of yeast that are in your sourdough starter and bacteria are going to be, at this point, the San Francisco ones, and there may be some influence left from the Para sourdough, but really, I think you can just start your own sourdough wherever you are and not overthink it and not get too fussy about it. You can, and you have great instructions in your book on how to do that. As some of the earlier books you were talking about that influenced you, such as Nourishing Traditions, fermentation is a big part of it. Also is the importance of using organic, local, clean ingredients. Do you think that in order to ferment right, it's important to use these kind of ingredients? Well, in some cases, is absolutely important. There are some additives to some kinds of foods that actively inhibit the growth of microbe. And with the fermentation we're doing, we're actively encouraging the growth of microbes. For instance, if you're doing some kind of ferment involving fruit and you're using dried fruit that has some kind of preservative in it, then that could be a problem. Just from a health point of view, if one of your reasons for fermenting is to improve your health, which is a pretty good reason to ferment, you want the cleanest, best ingredients available anyway. So it's sort of at cross purposes. One ingredient people may not think about a lot is water. Water that we get from the faucet in many cities, in most cities, has preservatives in it, chlorine, namely, or chloramine, some kind of chlorine variant. These preservatives are there to inhibit the growth of microbes. I think even the first thing to worry about in terms of pure ingredients is some kind of reasonable water, if you're using water in your ferment. It's so easy to overlook. You can just get like a pitcher water filter. That's way better than nothing. Reverse osmosis, I think, is the gold standard for me. Some people worry about reverse osmosis, removing too many of the minerals from the water so that the water is sterile and dead. If you're fermenting, you're adding some kind of salt or sugar or something. You can choose mineral-rich salt or mineral-rich sweeteners. And I think at that point, you are more than restoring the mineral potency of your filtered water. And again, if you look at what it costs to buy a cabbage, maybe it's 70 cents a pound for a non-organic cabbage, and maybe it's a dollar twenty for an organic cabbage. If you look at what it costs to buy already fermented cabbage, fancy artisanal sauerkraut in a jar, 
It's probably closer to 6 or $7 a pound. So treat yourself. Even aside from anything else, it's not a big incremental cost. And it's also meaning there are less toxic chemicals in the universe really are on the earth. It's very hard to find reasons not to use the best ingredients you can. And of course, all the fermenting stuff makes a whole lot more sense if you have your own garden or your own farm. I do think about this sort of artificialness of me going to the store, buying a cabbage and then fermenting it to preserve it when at least right now I can go to the store anytime I want to buy a cabbage. So I don't really need to preserve cabbage for the reason of just preserving it. But someday maybe I will. And At that point, I'll use whatever cabbage I can get. But certainly, if you grow cabbages, make sauerkraut. If you grow beets, make beet kvass or fermented beets. If you have bees, you have honey, make mead if you want. Or if you have a lemon tree that produces lemons all at once in February or whenever it produces all its lemons, then making preserved lemons is fantastic. So use what you have, I guess, before anything else. But yes, the best ingredients are worth using. Yes. Actually, last summer, I started growing some cucumbers and then fermenting them myself. And it's such an amazing process of stuff that you grow out of your own yard, and then you ferment, and then you eat. It's wonderful. And I think you must have been reading my mind, because with the question, obviously, I was referring mainly to produce, fruits and vegetables to ferment in terms of ingredients. But I was also that could actually follow up about the water, that that's something that's very important. I know you talk about in the book. And yes, I have heard some people have concern about reverse osmosis. I know that there's some other kind of systems out there now which are similar, but work a little bit differently, such as the one by Radiant Life. It's funny you should say that, because one of the first interviews I did probably maybe nine years ago was with Radiant Life on their blog. And I eventually got around to, they were asking me questions and I eventually got around to saying, oh yes, and you should filter your water. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on the Radiant Life blog. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not clued into exactly the technology you're referring to, but I think anything we can do to improve the water that we're drinking, like the old trope, you know, we're 70% water, but it's true. (laughs) The amount of water that goes in and out of humans makes it extra important to optimize what's in the water and what's not in the water. So yeah, super important. I love the founders of Radiant Life. I remember they did a talk at the Wise Traditions Conference several years ago about everything that's in our drinking water. And (laughs) oh, wow, it just blew me away at all kinds of stuff they put into it. I think it was one of the most interesting talks I'd seen at the conference, most informative and alarming of how we need to really have your water. Yeah. And It's amazing what the human body will put up with and how well our kidneys do work and all of this, except that there is a limit to what our bodies will put up with. And I think we're testing that limit and we're seeing huge increases in cancers of all sorts, thyroid problems, appendix bursting, all these things are, well, I'm not a doctor. There's some kind of toxicity or imbalance. This was not happening in our hunter-gatherer past. So I don't want to make a joke of it, but I was talking to my aunt, who's not with us anymore, but a long time ago, I was talking to her and I said, oh yeah, filtered water. And she said, I've been on this earth for 60 years and I haven't drunk filtered water and I'm fine. And then I had to remind her that she had had breast cancer 10 years before. And she was like, oh yeah, that's right. So we don't see these things and it's very difficult to draw a line of definite cause and effect, but just the cumulative toxicity, anything we can do to reduce it is certainly not going to hurt and will probably help. Yes, you can't draw a direct line between the food you eat or don't eat and what happens to you 10 years later, but it all adds up. It does. I think it's something overlooked, even if people have seen Aaron Brockovich or a civil action. Yeah, and we just don't know until decades later. And by then, we each only get one life. And so, again, back to kombucha articles, not just plugging kombucha, although I can plug kombucha if you'd like me to. Oh, yeah, we love kombucha on this show. (laughs) Okay, so we can either wait another 20 or 30 years until all the science is in on kombucha and every doctor agrees that we should all drink kombucha. But in 20 or 30 years, I'm going to be pretty old and much of the benefit of kombucha will be lost on me. Or I can just keep drinking kombucha now and I think I will take the latter choice. It's like when you have contractors in your house, 
you can just tell them, oh, yeah, go ahead, do whatever you want. I want to renovate this room. Just go for it, right? But that's how most people go to the doctor. They go to the doctor and they say, okay, tell me what I need. And if people can just become a little more aware of where they're at and what their challenges are, I think it will serve them. It's like just drive rather than being in a boat that's floating downstream. Grab the oars and steer it a little bit. It'll pay off. And, you know, if you take your car to the shops, you don't just say, go for it, whatever it needs. I mean, sometimes you might, but it's good to have an idea of what you want to change. So with your health, there aren't that many people who will go on a radical diet if they don't think anything's wrong. And I would say maybe they don't need to if they can't find anything wrong. But if somebody's having a cheap digestive problem, then they know why they are changing their habit. Like they're highly motivated to sort it out. So I would invite everyone to really try to listen to their body and make sure everything's okay. And then if it's not, then have a goal in mind when you're trying to change everything. What are you trying to do? And how are you going to decide whether it worked or not? And what alternatives are you considering? With the pandemic, obviously, a lot of people have been willing to learn different fermentations, sourdough, kombucha, sauerkraut. And this is a change because I know for a long time, a lot of people were afraid to ferment, thinking that it would go wrong or just the time it takes to do it. Do you still meet some people who see fermenting as something difficult? I do. I think a lot of it, people are worried they're going to poison themselves, right? And that's a good thing to worry about. Right. I think a little knowledge can help people feel much more secure. One of the things I talk about in the book is the general food safety rules that you learn when you're in a professional food situation, whether you go to cooking school or anything like that. There's a certification you get that says you understand enough about food safety not to hurt people. And I summarize it in, in a page or so. Once you understand that a certain amount of acidity in your food will prevent almost anything bad from happening to it, I think you can start to feel like fermented food is safer than not fermented food. And I think once you understand that, then all of a sudden it makes a lot of sense to ferment. And once you have made sauerkraut maybe once or twice, you realize it's a lot easier than cooking chicken marsala or something. As kitchen projects go, making sauerkraut is about the simplest thing I can think of. So I try to encourage people to make sauerkraut and to get over their fear. We're indoctrinated to put everything in the fridge when we're done with it and to not leave things out on the counter. And for the most part, it's not a bad idea, but we should understand when it's not only okay to leave things out, but when it's good to leave things out, right? It's just another technique for transforming food. It's not inherently risky. Yes. Many fermenters that I talk to, they'll say that sauerkraut is a good starter to learn how to ferment. That's one of the more basic ones. And I know that while fermentation at home has become bigger, there is still a big market for fermented products. I was at the Natural Products Expo West a couple of weeks ago, and this was the first time attending it in person since 2019. And products such as kombucha and sauerkrauts and even some pickles, they do still make up a big part of what it is do you think that the products that we see in supermarkets of those types are fermented right? Are they fermented long enough? Or do some of them take some shortcuts where they're not fermented for a long amount of time? I don't want to impugn anyone's products, really. I think as long as they're safe, it's fine. The reason that I like to ferment at home is because I have control over how long things are fermented. From a health point of view, there may or may not be the optimal length of time to ferment sauerkraut. Maybe the optimal length is between four and six weeks under certain temperature conditions with certain cabbage, with certain amount of salt. It's hard to know what the right amount of time is. So if I want sort of crunchy, lightly sour sauerkraut, I'll ferment it a few days. And if I want very sour sauerkraut, or if I'm going to cook it anyway, maybe I'll ferment it a few months. I don't want to say that the commercial products are fermented the wrong period of time, but if you buy at the store, you don't necessarily get to choose. I suppose you can always ferment it longer by leaving it out on the counter at room temperature. There's definitely a time and a place for buying all sorts of fermented foods, and I do buy fermented foods. But in some cases, the easier ones, certainly the advantage of making them at home is that you are in charge and you decide what herbs go into it 
how sour it's going to be, how finely you're going to slice it, things like that. And you also save a lot of money and have fun and build community. And you're going to somebody's house for dinner instead of buying some bottle of wine at the store that you have no connection with. You can bring them a big jar of sauerkraut and say, I made this. And it's sort of a more intimate gift. And it's generally cheaper too. (laughs) And it's sort of more interesting. It is. And like we talked about before, if you add in the step of then growing it yourself, if you have the fortune of having a yard where you can grow it, I think that makes it even more fun. Also, what I like about what you're saying is something I hadn't thought about was that I think you're essentially saying there isn't so much a right or wrong amount of time to ferment. It creates different products and different tastes, and there's different advantages to how long you decide to ferment it for. Yeah, no, that's right. There's half-sour pickles, there's full-sour pickles. The fermented cabbage you might want to put in a coleslaw-type thing will be younger and crunchier than the fermented cabbage you might want for a big braised sauerkraut with sausages and smoked pork and all that. There's no one true sauerkraut in my book. Yes, because I've had a lot of sauerkrauts. I've covered a lot of different brands of them, and they all are good for... Lots of different reasons. Speaking of that, you've talked about sauerkraut and ones you've liked. What are some of your other favorite fermented dishes? Well, one of them in my book, I have a Carolina-style coleslaw that starts with fermented vegetables as the base. We think of a Carolina-style slaw as having vinegar in it. In the old days, you're keeping your chopped vegetables out at room temp. And so you're essentially making sauerkraut in the summer and you have your vegetables and you don't have a fridge. Maybe you could bury it in the ground like they've done in Korea in the past. But things will get sour on their own. So I suspect that before people were chopping up vegetables and putting vinegar on them, they were just chopping them up, putting salt on them and then adding neat things. So I have a recipe for a coleslaw that I think is very nice and goes with a wide variety of foods. And that's one of the favorite ones in my book. Fermented dishes in general that I haven't made. Well, I will offer a shameless plug for a company that I'm advising that makes a fantastic hard kombucha. The company is called Dr. Hops. And yes, hops is added to this hard kombucha. And it has between, depending on the variety between 9 and 12% alcohol by volume. And this is an example of a ferment that would be very hard to make at home. And that's one of my favorites these days. I'll also say that I don't make wine or beer because there are enough people out there who do it well enough that, you know, I'm just going to buy it or trade it or whatever. So it's a fantastic moment in wine and beer right now. I think they're natural wines, orange wines. Beer has, in the last 20 years, just become so much more interesting What are other fermented foods? Miso and the amino pastes are going through a revolution. High-end restaurants are making amino pastes, essentially miso, out of everything. What has been acknowledged for a while as the best restaurant in the world, Noma in Denmark, has an entire department devoted to fermenting. And a lot of what they ferment is they ferment proteins into amino pastes. For folks who aren't familiar with what I mean by amino paste. Miso is maybe the most popular example, but Vegemite, Marmite, Bovril, that whole family. You can essentially make an amino paste out of anything though, and people are now. So that's a big change and you see some really interesting things. But miso is a powerful and extremely useful fermented product. From a health point of view, as I said before, I'm a fan of natto. It seems like the odds are pretty good that natto is healthy at this point. There are just so many different fermented products out there, and we're only going to scratch the surface in a short conversation like this. But those are some of my thoughts, I guess. I like that you bring up natto, and I know that's one that a lot of people are afraid to try due to its pungence, so definitely an overlooked fermented dish. Are there other ones that you would say are underrated? Underrated? I think they're getting their due now. Kimchi has risen from obscurity. Yes. Again, yeah. And part of it, the Korean taco trucks in LA, I think, opened new markets for kimchi and gochujang and Korean products in general. Yeah, I can't say that kimchi is overlooked, but I do love my kimchi. There's lots of it. And I like how they've come up with different ways to make kimchi, as we're talking about how there's different ways to do the ferments. For instance, Cleveland Kitchen, who 
I know very well. They've been on this show. I love to have my hometown represented in their name. They just introduced a mild kimchi for those that kimchi is a little too spicy for. And I know other crock companies, companies such as Pickled Planet and Firefly, they do a kind of kimchi where it's a little thinner, so it has more of the texture of a sauerkraut, but with the kimchi flavors and ingredients. Really, it begs the question of where is the line between sauerkraut and kimchi. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, if it has ginger and either garlic or onion or both, I think that makes it kimchi. There's absolutely no requirement for pepper. And in fact, red pepper is America's plant. And so there wasn't any in Asia until 16-something, 17-something. And so most kimchi for most of history didn't have any red pepper in it. So there, there's a huge amount of precedent for making non-spicy kimchi. Maybe it would have had black pepper in it, or Sichuan pepper in it, but there's just as much variety as with sauerkraut. It doesn't have to be Napa cabbage, red pepper, garlic, onion, ginger, sugar, whatever. And I think one of the beautiful things about the great bloom in commercial fermented food variety is that for home cooks, I have a pretty good imagination, but I can always use help. And so sometimes I'll just Google around to see what kinds of things people are putting in their kimchi. And I'll say, oh, that sounds like a good idea or what they're putting in their sauerkraut. And then maybe I'll make it or maybe I'll buy something and taste and say, wow, this is fantastic. What's in it? So it's reached a point where there's enough cross-fertilization that there's a real growth of creativity, I think, and creation in the fermented food space now. I think it's reached critical mass. I hate to use that metaphor because critical mass, of course, refers to atomic explosions, but it is a very good metaphor. There are a lot of great new types of sauerkrauts that we've seen. Some of my favorite are a dill pickle kraut. I know that Catherine Lucas of Farmhouse Culture, she explained that dill pickle kraut was the gateway kraut because it makes a lot of sense. A lot of people love pickles some people are afraid, though, of sauerkraut, so I think if you combine those two, it's a great way to get people to try sauerkraut that haven't before. That makes total sense. Yeah, pickles, people find less intimidating. A lot of us have grown up eating pickles. As far as making cucumber pickles goes, I will say that cucumber pickles are not as easy to make as sauerkraut. There are more things that can go wrong if your cucumbers aren't fresh, if you don't cut the ends off, if you don't use enough salt— you can get mushy, hollow cucumber pickles, and those are no fun. So I will advise anyone making cucumber pickles, keep an eye on them, taste them when you think they're done, taste them a day before you think they're done, taste them every day. And the minute you think, okay, this is almost done, it's done. <laughs> if you didn't use a huge amount of salt, then it's time to put it in the fridge. Archival pickles, you need to use a ton of salt. If you're making pickles to be consumed soon, then they really will be happier in the fridge if you want them to remain crispy and fun. Having said that, there's another thing I'll say about like, well, what do you do if you think your stuff is too fermented? If your pickles got soft, if your sauerkraut is mushier than you like or too sour. And what you do is you include it in some cooked food. So if you're going to make some kind of cooked sauerkraut dish, it doesn't matter if it's mushy. It's going to be mushy once it's cooked anyway. And there are various pickle soups you can make, or you can make your own relish if you want to do that. It doesn't matter if it's a little soft. All of the cooked kimchi dishes, whether it's kimchi stew or kimchi pancakes, you could make sourdough kimchi pancakes. I've done that combined two nice fermented things. It doesn't matter if your kimchi is soft. It's maybe better. Another part of your book that I like is you break up ferments into different categories. And so we've talked about what are probably the most well-known ferments, the sauerkraut, the pickles, the sourdough, the kombucha, but there are a lot of foods that many people aren't even aware are fermented. What foods would you like to let the listeners know are ferments that they may not think of as such? Um, there are things like coffee, chocolate, vanilla. There are things like olives. I guess capers you could probably get are fermented. Anything baked, most things baked. Things that have yeast in them have that. Probably beer, wine, hard apple cider, mead, anything with alcohol in it at all starts as a fermented food. Distilled spirits are fermented before they're distilled. Your vodka started life as some kind of carbohydrate mash that was fermented, and fermenting it'll get it to about 18% alcohol, and then to turn it into vodka, you, you heat it 
to separate the different components of it, like the water and the alcohol. But it started life as some kind of carbohydrate, and it got fermented. We have no better way of making alcohol than fermenting. There may be some other way, but it's obviously not economically feasible because nobody does it. So what other things are fermented? Vinegar is an obvious one. That's another thing. You make your kombucha or you make your beer or your wine and somehow some bacteria get into it and you're like, oh, it's ruined. Some extra bacteria or it gets too sour. Like, oh, it's ruined. Like, No, it's not ruined. It's just on its way to becoming vinegar. So you can use it in sauces. You can use it now. Shrubs are getting very popular in cocktail making. You can certainly use your drinking vinegar in cocktail making if that's your thing. You can use it in salad dressing. You can use it to marinate things. The range of acceptable amount of fermentation ranges from just a little bit to way, way, way beyond what you might want to just eat on its own. But they're all useful. So there are a lot of things. When you're looking at something, think to yourself, is this fermented? Is this a fermented food? In a lot of cases, it is. And then think to yourself, if it's not a fermented food, should I ferment this? <laughs> and in a lot of cases, you could, and maybe you should. I like how you bring up vinegar and olives, and a lot of times olives have vinegar in them. Now, I know some of the olives and vinegar on the market is pasteurized. So are a lot of the olives that we find in a conventional food store actually fermented, or is that something that's more of a specialty food? My understanding is that when you pick the olives from the tree— there are toxins in them and the typical way to neutralize and or remove those toxins is to ferment them. And what you do with them afterward depends. Anything you buy that's been canned, which can be in a can or in a glass jar with a sealed cap, has been heat treated. If you buy them in the bucket from more of a gourmet type store, have they been heated? I'm not sure. But I think in all cases, they've been fermented somewhere along the line. And that raises an important point too is that there's a difference between products that are fermented and products that have live microbes in them. Bread is definitely fermented and by the time it reaches an internal temperature of 200 Fahrenheit or whatever you're shooting for, there's definitely nothing alive in it. It doesn't make it less fermented, it just means it doesn't have live cultures in it, live microbes. So people oversimplify sometimes when they talk about fermented foods, they think that that means it has to have live cultures in it. And no, you know, things are fermented and then pasteurized sometimes, like you say, and it doesn't make them less fermented. There have been kombuchas on the market that have been pasteurized. And yes, they're still fermented. No, they don't have live microbes in them. And so armed with that information, you get to choose which products you want to buy. There's another organization I'm involved with called the Fermentation Association. One aspect of it is a trade organization for fermented food producers. Another aspect of it which is connected is helping the public understand fermented foods. And so I believe the Fermentation Association will play an important role in helping clarify what it means to be fermented and why that's good and what it means and what it doesn't mean, things like that. You address a lot of important points because, yes, sourdough is cooked, so obviously it doesn't have the living microbes, and sourdough still has many of benefits. So then does that mean that any kind of olives, even the ones where they do pasteurize them in the end, they were fermented at one point and they still have some nutritional value in them because of the fermentation early on? The olives? Yeah. My understanding is you really don't want to eat olives that haven't been fermented because they're toxic. <laughs> so <laughs> from the point of view of not poisoning you, they're healthier than raw olives. I would say the same thing with soybeans. Unfermented soybeans can be very difficult to digest fermented soybeans, if you ferment them almost any which way, they're easier to digest. They have fewer anti-nutrients in them. And just because you've cooked them doesn't take away any of that. It's very important to have soy fermented. Other types of beans and legumes, you can sprout and they're easier to digest. Soy, not so much soy, really fermenting is the only way to go to really safely consume soy or consume a large amount of soy. In terms of other foods that people don't think of as fermented, this is the appropriate omnivore. So of course, I want to bring up cheeses and then deli meats and cold cuts, things such as salami, corned beef that are prepared over time. Sure. Um, fermentation is a huge part of the way we consume dairy. Drinking fresh milk is a pretty unusual thing it's in the arc of human prehistory and history. 
again, we didn't have refrigerators until pretty recently. So unless you were in a pretty cool, cold climate, any milk that came out of an animal would start to change within four hours, say. So to the extent that we can guide that change that happens, the fermentation, we can decide the fate of that milk. If it weren't for fermentation, we wouldn't keep dairy animals or they wouldn't be the significant part of our economy that they are right now. So in order to keep dairy, you need to stabilize it somehow, generally either by removing liquid or by making it sour or by doing both. All of the dairy ferments that we know do one of those things, and most of them do both. Any hard cheese or soft cheese that we think of is fermented. The only dairy products that aren't fermented besides the milk and cream are cottage cheese and ricotta. There are some cases where you just add some acid, coagulate it, and you get a somewhat more stable dairy product. But all of the sour cream, yogurt, and the traditional hard cheeses and soft cheeses are all fermented. And so without fermentation, there wouldn't be dairy as we know it. And with cattle farming in general, whether it's meat or dairy, I like to bring up that when properly done right, it's all fermented in that 100% grass-fed beef. The whole idea of it is the grass ferments in the rumen of the animal. That's right. The best technology we have for transforming plants into protein, I believe, is the cow or the ruminating animal, right? And there's a fermentation bioreactor in your cow, and that's what's turning this grass, which, by the way, is not digestible to humans, into something that is helpful to humans. And I know this is a little off track, but a large portion of the Earth's surface, which is not suitable for growing foods that humans can eat, but is suitable for grazing animals. Mm -hmm. And when people throw out statistics about the relative efficiency or inefficiency of grazing animals versus growing human foods on the same land, I think that point often gets missed. And another point that often gets missed is that we've paved over much of our best agriculture land to build houses and supermarkets and highways and lawns and all that. So yes, it makes sense to graze animals on land that is not necessarily suitable for doing other things with. And there is plenty of it. And land use in general, I think, is much bigger and more nuanced topic than people want to make it. Very misunderstood. And yes, no worries about changing the subject. You could bring that up anytime on the show. That was pretty much the reason why I started doing the blog and then the podcast in the first place. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, the more we can get the word out, I think, the better chance that we can correct course. Yeah, and the thing is, so that was the origin of it. But then after doing it, I learned a lot about other things such as fermentation. And I ended up looking back at it. In some ways, you could say the whole blog is about fermentation because, <laughs> like I said earlier, that's the advantage of eating grass-fed beef is we can't have the grass, so the cows ferment the grass for us. So that's one which, of course, is a little different than you're talking about. I don't know if you're going to ever write a book about how you can raise your own cow and, you know, essentially, here's a book on real food grass fermentation. I would, but so many people have done it so well. Diana Rogers and Rob Wolf's new book, people have written this book, I think. So there are so many wonderful, smart, motivated people on the same path that you and I are on trying to fix the food system. It's inspiring. And 90-some percent of it has happened in the last 20 years. And it's one of the things that gives me hope. Me too. And speaking of that, do you have any plans for other books that you'd like to write or projects that you'd like to do related with fermentation? I have a few vague ideas. Again, I'm involved in some businesses I mentioned Dr. Hops, the hard kombucha company, I may wind up working more with fermented food producers. I have this idea every time there's a disaster of any sort that the most important thing is making easy fermentation information available to as many people as possible in as many languages as possible and distributed in as many ways as possible. So there's something there. I'm grateful to my publisher for this chance to revise the book because I think the timing was perfect. And the little obsessive compulsive Alex inside of me is very happy to be able to fix all the tiny little typos. There weren't any severe ones. There were a couple of commas though. I, was like, <laughs> I wish that comma weren't there. And I get this chance that many authors never get. And so 
I'm grateful for that. So I'll be talking with them. I'll see what their thoughts are about what may be next and bounce some ideas off them. But I want to see fermentation continue its rise in the culinary world. I want to see fermentation tools available to more people across the world who may need it to survive. That's a start. It's some good food for thought, no pun intended, or perhaps major pun intended. (laughs) We're just about out of time, but before we go, let the listeners know where they can go online to learn more about your books and the other stuff you're involved with. Yes, my second book is called Kombucha, Kefir, and Beyond, which I wrote with my co-author, Raquel Guajardo. And if you just go to realfoodfermentation.com, that will get you where you need to go. You can also go to feedmelikeyoumeanit.com. You can go to Amazon and search for Real Food Fermentation. You can go to your local independent bookstore and ask them for it. That's sort of the best thing to do because, again, that thing about infrastructure collapse, we have Amazon now, but is that the future? Is that the future we want? where there's just one store that we buy everything from? And what happens if supply chain that we keep hearing about gets disrupted somehow? Are we better off buying products from local sources? So my blog is feedmelikeyoumeanit.com, and that's a good place. There's lots of content there, too. You may not need to buy the book right now. I know I'm undercutting my sales by saying this, but I have lots of interesting information there. And maybe all you need is one recipe, and maybe that recipe is already there. So ease your way into the fermentation world in whatever way feels right to you. Some people like to buy all the books and read all the things all at once, and then some people like to dip a toe in and let it sit for a while. Excellent. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's my pleasure, and thank you for being such a smart and great host, and thank you for the work you do in the world. Yes, Thank you as well for what you do, and it's been a pleasure on my side as well having you on. A pleasure is mine. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'll be off next week. Follow me on social media for more information on the next episode. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go to iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. You can also listen to all my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time, my pantry is officially closed.